0: That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today.
1: We are forced to accept that some of the complaints that people like Trump have made of the existing trade regime are actually valid. We ought to build on that critique something that is neither this knee-jerk protectionism, zero-sum view of trade, nor the market fundamentalism, neoliberalism model to which this is all a reaction.
2: Hello, and welcome to The Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcasting Network. (laughs) I've been thinking a lot about trade recently. Uh, Obviously, it's been in the news. Donald Trump has has launched a trade war, which is not a term I love. Uh, it, It makes it sound more vivid and crazy than I think what is going on actually is. But it's a good time to talk about trade. There has been this tendency with Trump to to both recognize that he reflects some some very real ideological currents and even substantive, important critiques in in American life and policy, and also that he himself is an unusual human, <laughs> and and the the latter can often overwhelm the former. Uh, and then because he will often implement the things he's doing not that well or not that consistently, what was originally valuable in it, what was originally something that we should have been discussing, just. Becomes just more of the Trump carnival of chaos. I think trade has had that quality where he's come in, he's running a trade policy that doesn't make a ton of sense, even if you agree with his ideas on trade or what you maybe thought his ideas on trade were. But that doesn't mean that we don't need to have a bigger conversation about trade. I think if you watched the last election where Hillary Clinton had to come out against a Trans Pacific Partnership trade deal, which I am among the people who believe that she was not actually that authentically uh, critical of that deal, uh, the, that that was just where the politics were. But the fact that the politics were such that the Democrat got pushed to be against the TPP, that the Republican ended up being uh, an unusual Republican against the TPP, it shows that something has happened here. There's been a real change, I think, in the way the economics discipline treats at the very least the labor market effects of trade. Um, the work of David Otter and others, I think, has been very, very influential in – forcing people to recognize that while trade may have aggregate gains, that the losers really lose and they never get paid back. All this left me thinking a lot about the work of Danny Roderick. He is an economist and a professor of international political economy at the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard, and he's been for years – I think the most interesting and persuasive critic of the trade consensus in economics and, and not just a critic, you know, in the sense of he thinks some of the studies are wrong and certainly not a a nuanced critic. You have people who just don't like trade for intuitive or emotional or self-interested reasons. He's been someone who I think both understands its benefits but for a long time has been making critique based on political economy that should have been listened to more widely. Um, His work has influenced me for many years and, and I think he's just perhaps the most interesting thinker in this space. And a lot of what he said was going to come true has at least in one way or another come true. So it's a, it's a real pleasure to have him on the show. Uh, this is a discussion that is not really about Trump's trade war, though we get into it. It is really about how to think about trade, not just as an economic fact of life uh, and an economic pursuit, but as a political one, right? What, what does trade do to countries, to sovereignty, to borders, to people, to questions of distribution? and is the way we talk about it in, in our, you know, using our economic models, is that in any way actually relevant? <laughs> so, before we get into that, a couple quick things. There are a couple days left if you have a question for me on the upcoming Ask Me Anything episode. I'll be closing that uh, in, in just, a, just a few days, probably early next week. So, email me as reclinedjoadbox.com uh, if you want to write down your question and ideally also send it in a voice memo. Uh, although, if you can't do that, you can just write it down. That would be great. You can ask me. Anything. So again, write it down. Send me a voice memo at Ezra Kleinshow at Vox.com. Uh, The other ask is, if you're not checking out Netflix Explained yet, I really think you should. The most recent episode was about the exclamation point, and it's about how grammar changes over time and in different mediums, about why human beings evolved with only three ways to end a sentence, which is kind of amazing, and about how much the use of the exclamation mark has actually been a reflection of society's gender ideas. Um, Exclamation marks are primarily used by women, and their popularity has gone up and down depending on how society thinks about women and what roles women are in and how we view women power. And it's one of these great moments where grammar ends up reflecting something quite profound about us. So I just love the episode, and I think you will too. It's on Netflix. The show is called Explained. And with that said, here is Donnie Roderick. Donnie Roderick, welcome to the podcast.
1: Nice to be with you, Ezra.
2: Oh, I'm thrilled to have you here. I've been thinking about your work a lot in recent weeks as we've begun to enter into this trade war commentary and discussion. And so I actually wanted to begin before it. Can you talk to me a bit about your pre-Trump critique of how economists talk about trade? About the way you felt the the benefits of trade were oversold and the downsides of it were undersold, long before Donald Trump was ever a politician on the scene.
1: Well, I guess my work on this goes back to the mid nineteen nineties, and I, I wrote um, a little monograph back in nineteen ninety seven called um, "Has Globalization Gone Too Far." And it was a reaction to what I felt at the time was um, an odd uh, complacency uh, on uh, the consequences of trade and, and, and financial globalization. And I, I felt that um, we were on a path that um, was uh, leading to a significant amount of polarization, um, as I think I put at the time as countries were becoming economically more integrated with each other, there was an increasing threat of social disintegration within uh, nations. You could see some of the early signs of that in in some of the right-wing nativist movements that were already visible at the time. I remember I started the the piece by talking about uh, Patrick Buchanan in the United States and Ross Perot uh, in Europe talking about Le Pen, uh, the father, not the daughter, um, who was leading the uh, National uh, Front uh, in France. So there were there were already political signs of, of, uh, of a kind of a backlash. But I, I try to argue that these reflect the deeper tensions in in the model of globalization that we were pursuing. That it had created a very sort of uneven distribution of benefits um, and and costs. You know, capital being mobile and 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 uh, employers and firms writing the rules of the game, and, and labor um, essentially sort of the recipient of, of you know, much of the uh, the distributional costs and the shocks and the volatility and the the risks uh, of globalization, um, and that this risks risk undermining the kind of existing social contracts in the United States and, and Europe uh, on which really the post-war prosperity had rested. So that was the argument at the time.
2: Give me an example of how that worked. Let's take NAFTA because I think NAFTA is is one of the big agreements that most of the audience is familiar with. How did the integration of the economies of Canada, the U.S., and Mexico potentially lead to disintegration of of, of internal cohesion? Like, what, what what's a specific example of of you feel that happening?
1: I think the effect uh, of of NAFTA, clearly there were there were a lot of benefits in, in the ability of uh, firms to to establish and deepen their value chains and in in automotive and, and in consumer electronics, uh, those value chains were deepened. Um, you know, if you happen to be working for corporations where this happened and, and you were in the right place in the, in the management or the production chain, you were you know clearly benefited. But a lot of communities in the United States were uh, actually fairly devastated by the increase in in imports from from Mexico uh, once the tariffs came down um, and and these production chains um, were established. Now, interestingly, the first-order effect of NAFTA is really distributional. I mean, if you went looking for the overall economic effects, for U.S. national income, GDP, any aggregate measure of well-being in the United States. Basically, you'd have to go into the second digit after the decimal point to identify any economic effect. But if you look at what the effects were on specific communities in the Rust Belt or in in, in some uh, particularly areas that were producing goods that um, were now competing with Mexican imports, uh, imports from Mexico directly... Uh, there were some very large effects, and and these effects were not just in tradables in manufacturing, but you know, you know, you would have then uh, these income and job losses translate into reduced demand for uh, local uh, services and uh, businesses, and all kinds of social ills that that went with that, and because the United States is such a does such a terrible job of taking care of, of uh, people who are adversely affected by these shocks. And given that these shocks were very severely localized when, you know, you lost a single factory, the whole community and the town was hit very badly. So these had very, you know, adverse effects. And, and interestingly, it's very much, you know, a similar story in Mexico as well. I mean, I think many of the northern areas in Mexico did very well. The south, mainly agricultural, did very poorly. Um, so you had this gaps between the gainers and the losers being really the big effect of of NAFTA and not on sort of aggregate economic performance or aggregate employment or aggregate growth.
2: So I want to talk to you about two aspects of the political economy of that and and the first one is distribution. So when I talk to pro-trade, pro-free trade economists, what you will hear is an argument that goes like this. Free trade and these trade agreements and NAFTA, et cetera, that in both models and I think to some degree in practice, they grow economies and they create a lot more money for everybody. People are able to specialize. The economies get more efficient. you know, Everybody wins. But then you'll say, well, but look, there are going to be these communities or these people or these subgroups that lose. And they say, yeah, but, but with all the money that is being generated, we can more than compensate the losers. And so that's the argument that is used when you have abstract discussions about trade. And then we get into the real world where it seems to me there is no actual significant compensation of the losers. And so you have this disconnect between the model, which works as far as I, I can tell. I mean, you know, if you are willing to really lean into it, and then the actual politics which take that first step of creating the trade agreement, but don't really take that second of then saying, OK, well, we're going to have to make really, really big extra steps to, to make sure the distribution of this is working out. And there's something there that the economics profession to me has never seriously grappled with, that the failure of the model to account for how the politics actually works, it's not a complicated failure, but it doesn't seem to be one that there's ever been an answer to or an accounting for.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I think that's absolutely right. The proof of the argument that that you could make trade, particularly trade with low-income countries, work, if you had uh, adequate uh, mechanisms of compensation and, and and redistribution, is is Europe, because Europe has very extensive um, safety nets uh, in the form of an extensive welfare state. And um trade with countries like China or other you know, low-income countries, you know, to this day actually is not politically controversial in Europe, in large part because they have a very good system of, of taking care of the losers. So that we can see how their their existing safety nets have insulated a lot of the losers. Now, in the United States, I think the mistake that was made here was that with every trade agreement that was signed, and and NAFTA was not an exception, there was a tendency for trying to bring the potential losers and and labor unions along by promising with each new agreement uh, an expansion of what's called trade adjustment assistance, so that you promise compensation. But then, you know, the the compensation, it turns out, is never provided after the fact for the very reason you've identified, which is that, you know, once you've signed the trade agreement, the, the political incentive after the fact to make the funding available to ensure that it works as advertised is simply not there. In fact, you know, this is a problem that economists call the problem of time inconsistency or dynamic inconsistency, you know. You have an incentive to promise compensate, but once you've achieved the the policy change that you wanted, you actually don't have an incentive to follow through on it, because you can't simply reverse the agreement, uh, at least not you know without cost. So this was perfectly predictable, and I think it's it's a it's a consequence of the fact that you know the welfare state and and, and safety nets in the United States have always been weak, and the only time that really works is promise of compensation is when compensation or redistribution is an ingrained part of the, you know, an explicit bargain, a constitutive part of the social contract, if you will, and it's not directed uh, solely at trade, but it's part of, you know, essentially a a social contract that is much broader in the form of a a strong welfare state, and that's what we have um, in, in the case of Europe.
2: It's always struck me that when you try to think about what would a really robust trade adjustment assistance program look like, you know, if we, if we were really going to fall through on that promise, how would you do it? It gets very, very difficult. The losers of trade deals, if you are in a community where the manufacturing jobs collapsed, OK, maybe it's pretty easy to trace who got fired from the plant. I mean we we could do that if we chose and give them significant compensation again if we chose. Sometimes we give them a little bit but but never – certainly more than enough to to make up for what happened. But what about the um, waitress who worked at the coffee shop right near it? What about the mother whose husband is now home and moping and upset? And you kind of go down the line. And one of the things that has always struck me about American policy in general is we're very bad at place-based policy. We do not have good programs that really focus on specific communities. We have a couple things to try, things like You know, tax credits for this or that community. But in general, we don't like saying Detroit is suffering. We're going to help Detroit. We're really going to make a specific effort to help Detroit, in part because it feels unfair. You know, why, if you're helping Detroit, you know, shouldn't you also help Stockton, California or whatever it might be? But I I always think that even within the theory of this, that people underestimate how hard it would be to manage the specific. To, to really do something that isn't just redistributing money to, quote, unquote, the poor or the working class, but to to, to try to make sure these specific losers of trade were compensated.
1: You know, I, I've written recently that, I mean, we've been talking about compensation and, and redistribution, but let, let's be clear that for a whole bunch of reasons, including those that you've just uh, mentioned, you know, having this conversation in a future-oriented uh, way that, you know, the time for compensation or redistribution has come and gone. Uh, You know, this is really a discussion about what we might have done and did not do. And, you know, all kinds of reasons about why compensation is not going to work for the future. And it has to do with the fact that, you know, if you just do the math, the amount of resources that you need to raise to really do a proper compensation would, you know, exhaust the gains from trade that you're getting with these new agreements. Given the, the form that they take, you have all kinds of other issues about which you're getting at, which is why would you want to compensate some type of losers and not others? What's what's special about trade and so forth? So, and I think you're right about the peculiarities of the U.S. system, which is. The U.S. attachment to a certain version of localism means that, in in, in some ways, there is too little fiscal centralization in the U.S. That you know, once property values, for example, in a particular community start going down, the whole resource base collapses with that. So your ability to do something with public resources also goes down, and so forth. Given the dependence on uh, on local property taxes, but let me just make two points with respect to redistribution or compensation which aren't sufficiently appreciated. One is that just like in the case of the European welfare state, for much of the you know for many trade shocks, it's not at all clear why you would want to just pick on trade. if you have somebody's losing their job, you know it shouldn't matter whether that person, as you said is, is a waitress or is you know a production worker in some steel factory. For the bulk of trade, is no different than other kinds of economic shocks. So we should have safety nets, or uh, that that are you know whether place based or you know more uh, generically designed that that take care better of, of of people. The second issue is that some types of trade shocks are not properly handled simply by telling people, oh never mind, we're just going to give you a handout. Because when we force American workers to compete with workers in other countries where workers' rights are grossly violated, where basic health and safety requirements and factories are not in place, we are doing something that's very different from when a worker loses their job because, you know, somebody has come up with a better product or somebody turns out to be a better competitor. We're basically telling that worker that, you know, we expect you to compete with workers under competition rules that we find unconscionable, you know, domestically, but yet this is what you have to do. And and I think that is a fundamentally different kind of uh, competition. And I think we should have different... Ways of dealing with such types of competition. I've I've talked uh, in my own writings about making an allowance for cases of of, of social dumping, uh, which is basically cases where we're forcing our, our workers to compete um, under conditions that would be completely illegal or unconscionable from a moral or ethical standpoint uh, domestically. I think in those cases, actually, it's it's perfectly appropriate to think about uh, how we protect our workers differently than simply giving them a handout, um, and in some such cases it's as 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 plausible to protect them through uh, trade remedies such as blocking off that trade or putting some import tariffs in quite the same way that, that we have anti-dumping duties when foreign firms are trying to undercut uh, domestic firms because they're being subsidized or they're pricing below. Marginal cost for um, for predation reasons, you know we can block that kind of trade because we say it's not fair trade. You know we have to really think about you know how that same concept of fairness also applies uh, with respect to trade that might be having adverse environmental, uh, consumer safety, or or I think what I'm most concerned with is, is sort of labor standard, you know considerations at home.
0: This episode is brought to you by State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.
2: So, so far we've spoken about this reasonably technocratically. Trade creates winners, it creates losers. How do we maximize the winners and and compensate the losers? Something I think is interesting in your work is that you are uncommonly perceptive, I think, about how this debate proceeds ideologically. So in your book, Straight Talk About Trade... The beginning of it is actually not about what I would think of as trade. The beginning of it is about the cosmopolitan impulse on behalf of a lot of economists, policymakers, et cetera, who, who believe in trade. And I, I think you suspect correctly that borders, uh, nation states are are seen in this debate as a hindrance. And I think that that's become a bigger part of this. I think it's what Donald Trump intuitively understands, that he believes in the nation as a moral unit itself. He he believes in having – that he has a much larger commitment to other Americans than he does to, to other – to. citizens of other countries, and that a lot of folks in this debate, even if they believe that maybe to some degree, they're uncomfortable with it. They're uncomfortable with the nation state. They're uncomfortable with borders. They're uncomfortable with the cost that it imposes on on others. And so you begin by making a pretty full-on case for the importance and beneficialness of the nation state, not even as something we just need to have, but something we should have. I'd like you to to summarize that a little bit. What do you think people who – in truth are trying to move us towards a much more integrated world are missing about the importance of the political units we already have
1: yeah um there's been an interesting you know implicit alliance on downgrading both the practical and the normative significance of the nation state uh, on the part of you know the right and the left because the right, partly, you know, so the uh, business and financial interests uh, basically see the nation state as a hindrance, at least in normal times. Of course, when the crisis comes, they realize that it's going to be the state that's going to bail them out. Because in the global financial crisis, I mean, you know, who bailed out the firms and the banks? You know, it wasn't, you know, the IMF or some global institution. It was the federal government.
2: Although you could say in some cases in, in Europe, it was the ECB. The European Central Bank.
1: No, members of the euro having given up their own currency. Uh, I think the ECB belatedly had to step in. But basically, all the the actual first round bailing out of, of banks uh, was done through, of course, fiscal authorities, the national authorities. And so, the the Europe is a eurozone in particular is that is an interesting mixed case. Of, you know, we can can talk about uh, later, but. On the left also, there is, you know, there is this, you know, historical aversion to the importance of national borders, that there is a sense that, you know, we should have global solidarity and so forth. And the, and the way the, the way to address uh, issues of um, labor rights and, and wages and employment is through, through international agreements and international solidarity. I mean, I believe that the nation states are, the best laboratory we have for experimentation for different kinds of social arrangements, different types of market economies, different types of capitalisms. And so the worst is, is that you know, we ignore their uh, significance and the role they play in supporting markets and trade and commerce and then move into a kind of an intermediate you know, no man's land where on the one hand, we have weakened nation states so much that their ability to undertake their fundamental functions, such as providing the public goods of, of you know, welfare states and, and transfers and, and the you know, investments in infrastructure and education and so forth, you know, they can no longer do appropriately. On the what, on the other hand, you know, we haven't really for very good reasons, haven't really come up with global institutions that can step in and fulfill those roles in any uh, kind of a meaningful way. And then we have, uh, you know, a kind of a situation that's going to be ripe with uh uh, a lot of of anxieties and and, and uh, political backlash, and in a way, Europe is is the eurozone is is the place in the world that has traveled the most in that direction, and I think that's why they find themselves in in this you know structural problem where they have to decide whether they will either go the full way into economic union, which will require much stronger fiscal and political integration, or if they are unable or unwilling to do that, that you know one way or another, I think their economic union will become weaker.
2: One, I wanna think about how to ask this next question. One of the things that I notice in the way you argue for the nation state is that you have a very front-loaded appreciation Of cultural and economic and national difference. That, as I take your critique, what you're saying is that many of the more cosmopolitan trade, immigration, et cetera, inclined people in this debate, and I might even count myself in that number, they tend to look around the world. They're part of maybe a global elite, whether actually global or just sort of a national elite, and they they look around and they say, you know wouldn't it be great if we all just became more alike if we all just move down the path towards enlightened technocratic rule together and we'll make that happen through rules and we'll make that happen through through government um, multilateral institutions and, and and so on and something i see in your work is uh, a real emphasis that no Countries are different. They have different cultures. They have different needs. There's much more that we don't understand about them than economists like to admit. Uh, Economists pretend to know a lot more than they actually know. There's much more that works, many more different equilibriums that that can be effective than we had any idea of before. You've made good points about this with China and some of the, the Asian tigers and that I see you as making an argument for an economics that has much more appreciation of difference and how little we understand about what makes different countries work differently and as such places a lot more value on the institutions that allow them to continue working differently. Is is that a fair reading, both of you and of your critique?
1: Yeah. I mean I, I think that's absolutely right. I mean I I, I don't think that there is – you know, a single ideal way of uh, running an economy or organizing a society. And I think the narrow version of this with respect to economics proper is that um, the kind of institutions that you need to support markets, whether they're, you know, property rights, regulatory arrangements, um, stabilizing institutions such as macro and fiscal policy, you know, there's no one-to-one mapping between what markets need and how you can organize these uh, supporting institutions. So there, there is, you know, huge multiplicity in terms of how you can do these things, reconfigure these things and still achieve outcomes that, um, you know, are broadly prosperity producing. I mean, simple example, you know, the role of, of equity markets or stock markets. I mean, the U- U.S. financial capitalism is very much based on, on equity markets and stock markets. Germany's is not. I mean, the German stock market is a, tiny, you know, relative to its economy compared to what it is in the United States. And yet both countries are... Broadly wealthy, and so they can produce similar amounts of wealth with having very different kinds of arrangements, even with respect to financial markets, where we, you know, where we think that there's a single model should prevail. Of course, you know, when you move to sort of this more the social side of this, uh, you know, how much should the government collect in taxes? You know, how extensive should the safety nets be? What should be the role of government in providing? for industrial policy and and infrastructure. And and so all of these things hugely vary, even among countries that are broadly similar in terms of their levels of overall productivity and wealth. And, you know, and the the range of variation that we observe is probably just, you you know, tiny compared to what we could have. So in some sense, you know, we ought to be much more imaginative and courageous in terms of thinking about how we can reconfigure systems. I mean the whole story of capitalism is one of evolution over time and that's what makes capitalism such a successful system. It has managed to to adjust and to adapt to various pressures. but you know 18th century Manchester liberalism that enabled the industrial revolution in Britain looks nothing like uh, 20th century you know welfare state capitalism uh, in in Europe. And, you know, probably in the future, we'll, you know, that's the kind of transition we need to really envisage when we're thinking about, you know, where we want to be in the 21st century. And and the notion that we are all sort of converging on an identical model of capitalism is, just not just empirically and historically wrong, but I think is also counterproductive to the deployment of that kind of imagination, which is, I think, really our, our only chance of saving ourselves because of where we are right now. So let me
2: try to take the other side of the broad argument, not not the argument with you, but, but the argument that's happening around you, which is when I listen to Donald Trump or when I would listen to Pat Buchanan or Ross Perot, actually, for that matter, It seems to me that the argument being made is not a sophisticated, careful argument about the importance of national difference and the the distributional effects of trade, but is a much deeper and more intuitive argument about zero-sumness and positive-sumness in international economics and international politics. I think that Donald Trump's basic view of the world— is that everything is transactional. In a deal, somebody is a winner and somebody is a loser, that there are very few deals that everybody wins out of. I mean, he even when he talks about his own deal-making, he really does portray himself as winning deals other people are losing. It, it's not that everybody comes out ahead. And that the intuition that a lot of the pro-trade, you know, neoliberal, et cetera, establishment is, is at war with is that it's all zero-sum that for China to do well, America has to do poorly, that for Mexico to do well, America has to do poorly, that the the, the deeper integration here means somebody is taking us for a ride. And there's, a, you know, I, I grant that there's a version of this that is about distribution in individual communities, but, you know, by the same token that, you know, a, a lot of trades boosters are not great at managing that. What I see on the other side is a complete absence of, understanding or, or a complete absence of belief that there actually can be the winners, right? That there can be the winners from trade, that there can be the winners from international organizations like NATO. I, I see a real sense that any kind of collision between different cultures has to be, you know, somebody coming out on top and somebody come out below. And, and what, what scares me about that kind of politics and economics is that I think it's very deeply intuitive. I think that it is – I think it takes a constant mental effort to see the world as positive some. Uh, because it is so often zero sum, and so the appeal of zero sum politics, zero sum ideas about trade and, and and international relations, runs very deep, and I don't know how to counter it exactly. I'm not sure that, that that there is a good counter to it because I'm not sure it's a it's an argument so much as it's a feeling. Oftentimes,
1: well, I think that you know the the challenge that we're facing is that while we are forced to accept that some of the complaints that people like Trump have made of the existing trade regime are actually valid, to build on that critique something that is neither this knee-jerk protectionism, zero-sum view of trade that, that Trump exhibits, nor the market fundamentalism, neoliberalism, you know, hyper-globalization model um, which, to which this is all a reaction to. So I think that's, it's really, a, it would be a tragedy if we were forced to choose between just those two. And I think, you know, in a way, one of the worst consequences of Trump uh, is that he is reinforcing the views of um, the architects of the existing system as to, you know, why and there shouldn't be a change. Back in sort of a couple of years ago, after, you know, Brexit and, and, and Trump's election, you know, there was a moment of self-reflection, you know, on the part of the technocratic business elite and the, you know, international uh, multilateral agencies and so forth. And And you saw all of a sudden a lot of sort of outpouring of, you know, maybe we went too far. Maybe we didn't see the downside. Maybe we should have done this a little bit better. Maybe the complaints know, have a valid core and so forth. And so, you know, that has almost now completely disappeared because the people who are riding this wave of discontent are taking us, obviously, to such undesirable directions that it's making the the status quo ante, which was unsustainable, is sort of making it look like by far the better alternative that, you know, that we should go back to that older model. And I think that's that I find is very, very discouraging because we just don't face those two alternatives. The notion that trade is zero sum, if you look at every trade agreement that has been signed since NAFTA, you can make a very good argument on the basis of economic logic, impeccable economic logic, that in fact, they were more or less zero sum. Uh, That is to say that, you know, their net effect on the United States economy would be basically imperceptible and that there would be a whole bunch of big gainers, largely corporations, pharmaceutical companies, multinationals, investors, and a whole bunch of losers uh, where the imports were going to be felt. But that doesn't mean that that's the only model of trade agreement that we can think of. That's the only model of globalization we can have. And, And that's, I think, is where we need to go.
2: So, one of the places now the robbers hitting the road is actually with Donald Trump. Uh, he's no longer just talking about trade, he's acting on it. He has slapped a number of tariffs on Chinese goods. The Chinese have now retaliated. He slapped some tariffs on Canadian steel. The, the Canadians have retaliated. Uh, it looks like more is, is coming on this. So, Donald Trump has spoken a lot about what he doesn't like about NAFTA, about, about trade, but he's spoken about it very generally. A criticism I have heard is that within his attacks now on China, on on Canada, that it is very hard to discern what he wants, that his positive vision about trade, what he wants them to do is unclear. And so I'm curious, uh, coming from the perspective you do, watching what Donald Trump has done, do you think you have a good sense of what he wants, of what – if he was to win a trade war – what that win will consist of, what the concessions will actually be, what the theory here really in practice is.
1: I, I think that that you know some of the leading people around him were committed to this agenda. I sort of maybe can read what they're after. I mean, Peter Navarro just thinks China should be reined in because it's a threat. It's an economic security and political threat. And I think that's sort of what drives him.
2: So he wants China weakened. Like the the, the end goal there would be a weaker China that is not as challenging to American dominance. Okay. Exactly.
1: Um, You know, I think, uh, you know, Robert Lighthizer, I think, is mainly just doesn't like WTO, wants to significantly weaken the World Trade Organization and, you know, essentially make world trade safe for. American corporations to restrict trade whenever they want to without multilateral oversight and discipline. Now, I don't think in the end that that either one of those is really who's going to, you know, drive the process, and it depends on what Trump is going to do. Now, early on, I was relatively unconcerned that Trump was really going to move big in the direction of protectionism. I, I thought that his bark would have been worse than his bite, that I thought he was more interested in, in the rhetoric and and uh, saber-rattling. And I thought that he would be actually restrained by corporations and, and financial interests if he really wanted to go in the direction that he has embarked on. So now it looks that maybe, you know, <laughs> you know I was maybe a little bit too relaxed about this. But I think the way that you described it earlier, as he thinks of trade as essentially just pure zero sum. If I do something that others are complaining about, it must be that I'm doing something right. And therefore protectionism is right. I mean, he has a purely mercantilist view of trade, which is the more I export is good, the less I import is good. And therefore protectionism is good. And he clearly doesn't see the links between you know that trade policy and macro policy that the trade balance is going to be really much more driven by what the macro policy is and what the fed does and these trade protectionist measures really won't do much for the trade balance um so it's just a very kind of a knee jerk you know kind of protectionism driven by mercantilism and this purely zero sum view and i think it's also it's not so principled that it cannot change from one day to the next. I mean, you know, basically the guy is totally unpredictable and, and he might take us to global trade war and but he might also change his mind uh, somewhere in between. So I really don't know. But I just want to say one thing about trade war. And it's a puzzling feature of all this talk about trade war that in order for a trade war to happen, others have to... Play along. That is to say, that you can't have a trade war with just the United States putting up its tariff barriers. And I'm just struck by how accepting public commentary has been not only that other countries will retaliate in a big way, but also that they're actually justified in doing so. And that latter argument, actually, I don't understand. And I've just written a piece a couple of days ago that argues that it's completely silly and pointless. So before we get for, into that
2: piece, because I read this and I do want to ask you about it. Let's uh-huh. define a term here because trade war is a very vivid term. It's a more vivid term than we use for most economic phenomena and most international uh, political uh, discussions. Uh, what is a trade war?
1: Well, trade war is when one country raises its tariffs and, and another country retaliates by raising you know, its tariffs. And then there's a wave of retaliation where the volume of trade gets lower and lower with uh, growing economic costs uh, that, that both parties face.
2: But it, And it seems to me, though, that in a way that is ill-defined, there is some distinction between countries slapping a couple tariffs back and forth, and an out-of-control escalatory trade war. And I feel like this is a place where we use the language very loosely. I mean tariffs happen all the time. They happened under George W. Bush. Without it getting into a place where so much escalation and retaliation is happening that there's a massive economic effect, Like, how do you define when we move from something controlled and small and, and almost like an expression of symbol to something that is a real economic battle between two countries where the only way for it to end is for there to be either the submission or one, of one or both are pushed so far beyond a breaking point that they call a truce.
1: Yeah, I mean, I would define trade war as where we actually begin to see the implications in a significant fall off uh, in the volume of trade and with the... Economic consequences also being felt throughout these economies. Now we're nowhere near there. Now, I think Trump has now put on tariffs on I think something less than five percent of U.S. imports at the moment, and the stock market is completely oblivious to it. I mean, nothing has happened. Um, I still think that there are good reasons we are not going to have trade war in that sort of major, perceptible kind of a way. That I think, you know, even if Trump. Uh, in his folly, wants to keep on doing this thing, that other countries are smart enough uh, not to want to engage in this game. So I'm still hopeful that we are not going to have a a real trade war.
2: You you make an interesting point in the piece that, and you just referenced it there, that other countries don't have to engage in this game. That Just because Donald Trump has slapped a tariff on them doesn't mean they have to slap a tariff on us. Uh, Intuitively, to people, I think it makes sense that if America is going to disadvantage your goods, that you would disadvantage ours in turn, if only to show that you can't be pushed around. But, but make the case that other countries should ignore Donald Trump's actions here. How do you see the logic of escalating versus not retaliating?
1: Yeah, So this is you know, where Adam Smith comes in. I mean, before Adam Smith, the prevailing view of economics was this mercantilism that basically the gains from trade come from, you know, exporting stuff and imports are the cost (laughs) of exporting. Adam Smith comes and says, look, this is completely wrong. I mean, you know, the gains from trade actually come from being able to import more, from being able to, you know, enjoy more and more varied and cheaper imported goods. And that's what trade does. And so ever since Adam Smith, you know, we economists have been trying to show that the reason that countries lower their trade barriers is not that they want to extend benefits to other countries or that they're being altruistic, it's because they want to improve the performance of their own economies. Now, sometimes, of course, they have to make sure that the internal adjustments and the redistributions and all of that complementary measures domestically are undertaken to ensure that, you know, everybody takes part. But the point is that, you know, if open trade or free trade is good, it's first and foremost good for the country practicing it. By the same token, if protectionism is bad, you know, it's first and foremost bad for the country that is imposing it on its own. If Trump is pursuing these policies, sure, he'll have some adverse effects on other countries, but they're swamped by the adverse effects that he imposes on, on the domestic economy. And it's completely silly for other countries to simply just move on that same path of folly, which is to say, I'm going to cut off my nose to spite my face, essentially, as what to be doing. Now, the, the last time we had a real trade war, which, of course, everybody is thinking about, was the Great Depression in the 1930s. And that was a very different situation when, because countries were suffering from very high levels of unemployment, you know, there was an economic logic to countries putting tariffs on because, you know, they were essentially constrained by the rules of the gold standard that, you know, they couldn't inflate their economies, they couldn't stimulate their economies in any other way. And so there was an economic logic to protectionism as an employment increasing measure. So those circumstances don't apply today. So today it makes no sense for Europe or China now of course I understand politically that they have to do something but it would be so much more effective for them just to get together and say we will stand for the principle you know we pursue these open trade policies because we believe in them you know we're sorry that the United States is going down this path but that's not an argument for why you know we should inflict similar harm on ourselves
2: it seems to me that the reason this doesn't happen and the reason actually much of the debate about trade can be confusing is that the entire conversation is tilted towards the interests of producers and not consumers. That when we talk about both gains and losses, we tend to be talking explicitly or implicitly about people making stuff in one country or another. That the political pressure comes from people who have lost a job or people who want to be able to sell to another place. When the massive trade effects – The bulk of people affected are consumers in either country because they're just more people consuming any given product than making it. But that the issue is that consumers are diffuse; they don't really know why a price increase that is small is happening or is not happening, and so they don't end up being a huge part of the conversation or the political lobbying and jockeying that goes into the final policies because they're not organized in the way the producers are. And so we have this topic that is you know as you say that the gains of trade substantially accrue to consumers who get in theory both more and cheaper goods but that we have a conversation that's really only about producers and that just creates very weird downstream consequences
1: that's part of it and it, but the other part of it is that i think different types of producers uh, get different privileges in other words the producers that are explicitly international And our exporters tend to get much bigger say than maybe the smaller producers, the weaker producers, or the weaker that are primarily competing with imports. And that's sort of an interesting transformation of the world trade regime is that, you know, up until the 1990s, we used to think that, you know, the export oriented producers who wanted trade agreements and so forth were basically a counterforce to rein in the much more politically important, the import competing producers and labor groups and so forth who wanted protection. But I think ultimately what became is that, that these export oriented producers and the multinationals, you know, the, those who seek market access, became the dominant political force in terms of writing the rules of the game. So I think that's sort of reflected in today's skewed mercantilism, which, you know, is, is viewing everything more or less from the perspective of what is this doing to my imports? So it's not just that, you know, that, that consumers, because, you know, you know, there's going to be some producers that are worse off, some producers that are going to be better off. And, and so there are, there are differential outcomes across different types of producers as well.
2: We've talked here about how both economists and politicians talk about trade poorly. We've talked about how the pro-trade forces and pro-globalization forces for years have had a corporatist and overly optimistic message that has begun to fail um, and, and Trump is part of that failure. If you were advising a candidate running against a Trump-like populist how to talk about trade, how to talk about globalization, how to balance these things together, what would it sound like? What is the synthesis? Is it not talking about it right? Is it letting it rest a little bit more after after it's become so politicized? Or do you think there's a message here that after Trump and and after sort of the rise of Brexit-like populism – do you think there's a message here that is a both a correction from the pre-Trump, you know, sort of neoliberal consensus, and then the the, the Trump Brexit deep skepticism pulling back from from other countries' actions? Is there is there a middle way?
1: Well, I mean, yes. I mean, obviously, I, I think there's a middle way. I mean, I think Trump has 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 leveraged some real grievances, and and I think. Uh, so you know one needs to accept that and and, and one needs to uh, to, to take uh, that on board. So I think you know the the, the challenge is to 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 do that but to to do it in a, uh, in, a in a more you know progressive and productive uh, direction. Now when we look at the overall scale of the challenges uh, that we face, you know I would put fixing, our trade policy and fixing our trade agreements very sort of far below uh, in the list of priorities because most of what needs to be done in, in Western Europe or in the United States are, are really things um, are you know domestic economic policies and and uh, very few of those are rendered more difficult or impossible by existing trade policy. So if you know if if really wanted to say. Go back to the drawing board and, and the blackboard and, and say, okay, you know, how do we move in in a more inclusive prosperity uh, direction? The bulk of things that needs to be done are sort of is a domestic agenda. So I would the way I would talk about trade would be to acknowledge that you know trade agreements and the trade regime works in a very unbalanced way. That in the medium to long run, the way to correct it would be to uh, to rebalance these trade agreements in a, in a, in a democratic fashion, uh, that would be to give an equal uh, or a much more prominent voice to to labor and consumer groups and, and other civil society organizations in in the in the way that the agendas of trade agreements and trade rules are designed. Um, I would rethink um, the World Trade Organization in a way that. Provides much greater uh, policy space for countries to allow them to, to cement and, and repair their, their their social fabric and the social contract. But I would say that, you know, those are this kind of a medium to long-term agenda. I think right now, the best thing we can do with respect to the trade regime is just to take breather from trade agreements, put those in the in the back burner. Uh, and turn our attention to you know, domestic, economic, and social, and political reforms that are really a much um, more uh, urgent priority.
2: I think that is a good place to end. So let me ask you the question we always used to close the show, which is, on this topic or others, what are three books you would recommend to the audience?
1: One book that I would mention, James Kwok's book on economism, which I think is a very good book on um, how economics gets wrong. On globalization and the history of globalization, there's a fantastic history that allows the reader to put um, so our current troubles in a, in a long historical context, um, and it's by um, two economic historians, Kevin O'Rourke and Ronald Findlay. I forget what the name of the book is, but uh, O'Rourke and Findlay uh, that, you know, take the history of globalization all the way back to in the year 1000 and, and, and the Mongol invasions. Like I said, the third thing would be an article, not a book, but uh, it's uh, by my colleague, John Ruggie. And uh, it's called, again, I forget what it's called, but it's his it's, it's classic piece on uh, embedded liberalism uh, in the in the post-war economic order. And, um, and I think, you know, Ragi was very good in terms of um, identifying what made the post war economic order uh, both so different and, and and so successful. And I think in in many ways that we need to go to back to some of the same principles, if not exactly the same practices. So I think it, it makes for a very
2: good reading. And and for the audience, we'll go and get the, the headlines of those and, and put them in show notes. Uh Donna Roderick, thank you so much for being here. That was incredibly helpful.
1: Good to talk to you. Thanks for your interest.
2: Thank you to Professor Roger for being here. Thank you to my producer, Jillian Weinberger, and engineer Griffin Tanner. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media podcast production, and we'll be back, as always, on Monday.